Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. We've got one of the most mysterious Parshas in the entire Torah, which is the Ashes of the Red Heifer, also known as the Par Aduma, which means Red Heifer. <laughs> okay. So that that ends the Hebrew lesson for the day. But it's so deep. It's endlessly, endlessly, endlessly deep because not only is it talking about removing the ritual impurity of death, which we're going to discuss in a bit, but it's really talking about, on the deepest level, the end of death itself. So most commentators... And you'll never go wrong just learning these commentaries, just which are addressing like the most straightforward aspects of the Paraduma, the red heifer, which, by the way, is offered by the Torah sages as the fundamental paradox of the Torah. In other words, it is the example of how the mind only goes so far in terms of comprehending the infinite. Okay, so and then there's a there's a phrase in the Torah that doesn't that doesn't get as as much attention as this. But in another place in the Torah, it says that every mitzvah is a chok. In other words, we have three categories of mitzvahs in, in the Torah. We have edus, mishpatim, and chukim. Okay, so the first two categories are kind of testimonies to how God has run the world historically. So for instance, the, the holidays, God taking us out of Egypt, matzah, all these things would be in the category of edus, testimonies that God did these incredible things for us. Then we have mishpatim. Mishpatim are more kind of like, how are we going to get along with each other? And these are more rationally based things. And they say that other cultures have come up with these ideas independently, like don't kill, don't steal, honor your parents. These are mitzvahs that are rationally based and intuitive. And then we have this like exalted, exalted category called chukim, which are like in, in, in many ways, like the gems of the Torah for the following reason. The Torah tells us you can't understand these mitzvahs, <laughs> which, is, which is so awesome. What these mitzvahs are going to do is give us this golden passport to the realms beyond, to the realms beyond where the mind can normally rationally reach. You know, I I just had breakfast. There's this kind of like neighborhood group that gets together once a month. And anyway, so they asked me to say a few words at this little gathering here. I, it's sort of a, a regular gig once a month, you know, for 10 minutes or so. But anyway, it's it's a very nice person, and he serves locks, and he serves bagels, and today he added something new. There were blintzes, you know, and he's got fruit juices, and it's a really nice little backyard, and anyway, it was in the shade, and I didn't notice that he has a trampoline and a cactus and everything like that. And I was saying to the people there, you know, it's so nice here, right? Look at all these different things, and I was pointing out all the all the nice things about it. I said, isn't it nice? It's really nice, right? And we're sitting in the shade. Now, what if I told you, you could never leave? <laughs> All of a sudden, it's not, it's not as nice as it was, like, just like 
10 seconds ago. You know? Like, there are no outlets here for your phone, so I hope you got a good charge when you walked in, you know? So, it's, you look at it completely differently. You see, you know what it is? The world is an awesome place, but our perception of the world that we can see with our eyes only lasts as long as our body lasts. You know, this is a great place. It's a great world. Lots, so many beautiful things. So many tragic things too, but so many beautiful things. And, but what if you could never leave? So what, how precious is it when Hashem gives us this ability to connect to realms beyond, to realms beyond. While we're in this world, we can still connect to realms beyond. So, you know, the Ramban brings in his introduction to Chumash, and, and I think it's an older idea than, than this, that the Torah is black fire on white fire. So, so what does that mean exactly? So is it, is it ink on parchment? It's, it's also ink on parchment, you know, in, seen in a very meat and potatoes, this real level. But, but it's, it's richer than that. It's deeper than that. It's black fire on white fire. So what does that mean? So the black fire is those things that you can see with your eyes. Those are the letters. And then the white fire, what we kind of look at and just think is just the parchment that the, that the Torah is written on, the white fire stands for the spiritual realms that are there that we can't see with our eyes. You see, one of the, one of the amazing things is that the world is so much richer than just what we can see with our eyes. And it used to be the realm of faith that told you, and mystics that told you, that there's more to the world that you can see with your eyes. But now science has crashed that party. <laughs> and they're like, no, 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 there's more than you can see with your eyes. And it's become so basic to us. But you have to understand, this was a bit of a revelation for the world. And my favorite example of this, I have a couple of favorite examples, but my favorite example of this is Louis Pasteur, so he was the father of microbiology. And basically, he was telling his fellow townspeople and wherever he was living in France, he was saying, you know what's causing sickness in the community? There are these microbes in the milk which are causing, you know, disease and infection. And the townspeople said, ha, 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 ha. oh, Louis, 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 you know, you're telling us there are things in that milk that we can't see, but they're there. And he's like, yeah, yeah. And they thought he was the idiot. Do you, do you understand? It's, it's so crazy. So what does he do? He boils the milk and in doing so kills these deadly microbes. And that's why the word, you know, every, every carton of milk, if you walk into the supermarket, says pasteurized on it. Where does that word pasteurized come from? From Louis Pasteur. It's named after him, this process. But anyway, this is just a very, just a very clear example how there are things that exist that we can't see with our eyes. Now, of course, science has become, you know, extremely sophisticated in this, where it's not just like microbes in milk. We can now use electron microscopes to look at subatomic particles. 
right? So, so it's, it's, but, but we know that they're there, but we can't see them with our eye. And then let's go to the other extreme. What about like the Hubble telescope, which is beyond, 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 billions of miles away. We can see things that are part of the physical material universe that we can't see with our eyes. But then it extends that there are realms beyond what the eye can see. And what's so fascinating is that pure mathematics today, and I'm talking about not from a mystical standpoint, I'm talking about hardcore math. Math is postulating dimensions that exist that we can't see with our eyes. Now, does that sound like this, the stuff of religion? It sure does. It sure does. But do you see this amazing convergence that's going on in the world today where we're objectively proving scientifically what the Torah has been saying for thousands of years? And of course, physics and quantum physics and, you know, certainly string theory is, is one example where they're talking about multiple, multiple, multiple dimensions that exist that we can't see with our eyes. And these are physicists and mathematicians talking as well as biologists and all the rest. Okay, so all of this is to go back to this idea that the Torah is black fire on white fire, meaning to say there are the aspects of reality that you can see with your eye, and there are the aspects of reality, the white fire. It's not just parchment. It's not just ink on paper. That white fire are the realms that are there, but they just can't be seen with the eye. And of course... They don't just inhabit the physical realm, but they also go beyond in the spiritual realm as well. Okay. So, you know, I think a lot of people make a mistake. There's this tremendous bias among the quote-unquote educated, <laughs> which, is, which is the following. If, if I don't understand it, you know, I wish you well. I wish you well. Good luck to you in your journey. <laughs> but if I don't understand it, I'm not doing it. Now, let me tell you something. If you're signing a real estate contract or if someone is, you know, going to take over your stock portfolio or whatever it is, and they're asking you to sign a document, you better understand that. <laughs> you know, you show it to a lawyer, you can show it to 10 lawyers, you know, as they say, whatever Whatever makes you comfortable, you better understand what that document says. But a lot of people then apply that same logic, which is a very correct logic, by the way, to the realm of the soul. And they say, if I don't understand how this works in terms of the health of my soul, the life, the eternal life of my soul, then I'm not going to do it. And you know what I would call that person? A fool. That person's a fool. Why? Why? Because they're applying one set of criteria where it applies 10,000% to another category where it doesn't apply at all. Why? And now we're getting back to the chukim. Because the rational mind can only grasp so much before it hits a wall. And why is that? Because God is infinite and we're finite. That's just the, re that's just the, the, the reality. 
So, so there has to be a fundamental acknowledgement of the fact that we are created and the creation can't grasp fully the creator. If the, if, the, if the creation could grasp fully the creator, then the creation would be the creator. <laughs> but the creation is not the creator. You know, I heard a very interesting example that I thought was great. Someone said, can the book grasp the author? Think about that. Can the book grasp the author? I mean, no. No, the book is one articulation of the author's mind. And the author has many, many things in mind when he writes the book and many other books that this book will never know because this book is just this book. Right? Can the painting grasp the painter? Can the building grasp the architect? No, because each one of those examples, the creation itself is finite. Whereas the mind of the creator is way beyond that particular creation. So there's a certain humility that comes from common sense, really. Like when you think these things through critically, then you basically arrive at humility. Because you say to yourself, well, then then there is just a, a power beyond, 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 beyond. Okay. Now, what's so awesome is that God, in his mercy and in his love, gives us a way out of this world, gives us a way out of that backyard that I was talking about earlier, gives us a way beyond the limitations of our rational thought and our minds, which are exalted. Our minds are unbelievable. I mean, I'm not trying to diminish the power of the human brain. It's, it's awesome. It's absolutely awesome. But it is not the exact same as the mind of the creator. The mind of the creator is beyond. Which means that they're in that realm of the white fire. There are realms that you are given access to through the mitzvot. But they're all in the category of the chukim. They're all in the category of not the irrational, but of the super-rational. See, when it says that we can't understand them, it doesn't mean they don't make sense. It means they are beyond what the mind can grasp. I want to say that again, because it's such a critical point of understanding what people deride as faith, right? We, we, we have to be able to articulate our position intelligently. When the Torah tells us that you can't understand them, the chukim, it doesn't mean they don't make sense. It means that they are beyond the rational mind. They're super rational, not irrational. And there's a visual that I love that I want to share with you which is, you know, let's just say, just kind of to work within this 
visual kind of example for a moment. Let's say the ration, your rational thought ends at the top of your head. Let's just say that, okay? Now, you know, the top of your head, it's above your brain. It's sort of like a ceiling, if you will, to how high your brain can go. At a certain point, you reach a wall, and let's call that the top of the head. Okay. Now, you know what's so cool about a crown? <laughs> a crown sits on top of your head. And a crown bespeaks majesty. Majesty. So, so the word for crown in Hebrew is keter. So we have a phrase called keter Torah, which means the crown of Torah. And it's a, it's a very sort of a majestic phrase talking about just the royalty of, of Torah and the greatness of Torah. But it's working on a lot of different levels, this idea of Keter Torah. So remember, the crown sits above your head, above where the rational mind can reach. Now listen to this. The Balaturim, who's living about a thousand years ago, says, do you know what the gematria of the word Keter is? It's 620. All right? And you know what 620 also is? The number of letters in the Ten Commandments. <laughs> that interesting? And the Ten Commandments the rabbis teach contains the entirety of the Torah. So, so what is that telling you? That's telling you that the Torah is giving you access. The Torah is a crown that sits above the rational mind that not only allows you to master, to have majesty over the revealed aspects of the world, the black fire of the Torah, but also above the mind, the white fire of the Torah as well. That you're going in both directions. The Torah is giving you the ability to be in harmony and to elevate and to sanctify both. To raise up this world, and yes, 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 to raise up the heavens. To raise up the heavens. We're also given that ability by keeping the Torah. So now let's get into a little bit more this idea of the... And, and by the way, I don't know if I completed that thought before. In another place in the Torah... Every single mitzvah is called a chok. Isn't that interesting? Every single mitzvah. Not just the specific categories which are called out as, as, as chukim. That's plural for chok. But every single mitzvah is called a chok. Do you know why? Because even the ones that we can absolutely understand, don't steal from that person. We get it. You know, you have to have some sort of order in society. If everyone's stealing from everybody else... All of society breaks down, okay? In fact, it, it's, it's one of the reasons the rabbis teach why God brought a flood to the world. Because we were stealing less than a pruta. A pruta is like an ancient financial denomination, you know, a few pennies or whatever it is. Because we were stealing less than a pruta's worth from each other, which according to the laws of the day, was too little to bring a case to court. Okay? I, I, I want to make sure that you're following this. In other words, people, and that's why God brought the flood to the world, destroyed the world. In other words, we found a way 
to completely undermine the system of justice and the court systems of the world. If we were to steal just below the amount that you could bring a case to court, then basically it made theft accessible and you couldn't, it wasn't judiciable anymore. You couldn't get justice anymore on that level of theft. So now theft became the order of the day and no one could do anything about it. And so because the entire judicial system was undermined, God wiped out the world. That's, that's one of the teachings. That's one of the teachings of why the flood was brought. So we can understand on just a very rational level why we need mitzvahs like don't steal. But now comes the Torah and it tells us that every single mitzvah, even the ones that we can understand very directly and clearly with our rational minds, we don't fully understand. <laughs> Which is awesome. Which is awesome. It's awesome because some people might find that a very uncomfortable thought. You mean you're telling me even the stuff I understand I don't understand? <laughs> Get out of here. I can't take it anymore. Or, to me, when I hear it, I go, wow, the world is so big. God is so huge. God is so infinite. This world is so, like, boundaryless. I love it. I love it. I love it. And this is not some sort of embrace of ignorance, chas v'shalom. Rather, it's a fuller appreciation of the reality of the infinity that we dwell in. That's what it is. Because one of, the, one of the obstacles, one of the prisons, the prisons for the mind and the prison for the heart, is when you think you know everything. And it's so easy to lapse into that, that, that type of thinking. I want to tell you something. I... I saw it several times in the Eretzvi. That's Rav Frimmer, who, again, was the, the uh, Rosh Hashiva of Hachmei Hach Lublin and, and succeeded Rabbi Meir Shapiro, the founder of Hachmei Lublin, which was, you know, known as the, certainly was the most famous yeshiva in the world in its day. And he was the Rosh Hashiva. And he brings it, I'm not sure from which source, but he's, you know, one of the great tzaddikim of the last century, for sure, at least. So Rav Frimmer talks about that there are 10 levels to the heart. 10 levels to the heart. And that you can plumb the depths of your heart. Remember, what's the derech? What's the pathway, the spiritual path of Kutsk? Kutsk is all about emes. It's all about truth. Meaning to say, before you say something, you ask yourself this question, why am I about to say what I'm going to say? Is it to glorify myself? Why am I about to say what I'm about to say? Before you do something, why am I about to do what I'm about to do? Right? That's Kutsk. That's Kutsk. But you know something? You can answer that question, and then you can give a bigger answer and a deeper answer, and every time you give a deeper answer, you're plumbing the depths of your heart until you get to the 10th level of your heart and you're ready for this. You know what the 10th level of your heart is? You just don't know. 
that ultimately, 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 you surrender to the fact that you don't know. And what I think is so beautiful about that is you end up as an open clee, an open vessel at the end instead of a closed vessel. In other words, the greatest wisdom is to be able to arrive at the idea that ultimately I don't know. Not that ultimately I know. So the idea that the 10th level of the heart is a place that I'll ultimately not know means that my final conclusion is I'm an open vessel. And I can receive, I can continue to receive instead of getting shut off. Now I'm going to tell you something, an idea, which, which is a, an articulation of that thought in, in, in I want to say in halacha, but let, let me say in nusach, okay? That, that might be a, a more technical word. There's an interesting difference in the way Ashkenazim and Sephardim pronounce a certain word, okay? And you're going to see this idea of the 10th level of the heart in, in, in what I'm about to tell you. And I'm Ashkenaz by, by birth, but when I heard this teaching, I was like, okay, I'm going the Sephardi way. <laughs> There's definitely going Sephardic on this one. Okay, so you ready for this? Ashkenazim say the following. Baruch atah Hashem alokinu melchalam berei pri hagethen. Okay. Sephardim say, Baruch atah Hashem alokinu melchalam berei pri hagethen. So Ashkenazim say hagethen. Sephardim say hagethen. What's the difference? Very interesting difference. And this is a spiritual idea at work, and it's intersecting with Hebrew grammar. You ready? Grammatically speaking, the Ashkenazim pronunciation is correct. When the word for, you know, geffen, geffen, whatever it is, when it appears at the end of the word, there's a grammatical rule for this, and it should be pronounced Haguffin. So the Ashkenazim are technically correct in terms of their pronunciation. So if that's the case, why are the Sephardim say Haguffin, <laughs> which is the grammatical form you use when the word appears in the middle of a sentence? And you're ready for this? Something so beautiful. When you conclude the blessing, you want to leave the gates open. You don't want to seal them off at the end. You want to keep it open like it's still in the middle. You want to keep the pipes open for Shefa to continue to flow down. You don't want to seal it off at the end. So you say Haguffin. You say Haguffin at the end. So I heard that from Rabbi Simcha Weinberg. And after I heard that, I was like, I'm a Haguffin guy. Yeah. But... But why am I telling you this? Why am I telling you this? Because at the end, the idea is you leave the vessel open. The idea that you can plumb the depths of your heart 
and you can get to this 10th level of the heart that Rav Firmer brings in the Eretzvi. And the 10th level of the heart is you don't know. You don't know. You don't know. But instead of that being a surrender, this idea that you conclude with I don't know is not a surrender. It's an acknowledgement of the truth. Because God is beyond, 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 beyond. And the way that I'm positioning myself at the end of my search is by keeping myself an open vessel with I don't know, like a, like a geffen, right? To leave myself open at the end so that I can continue to receive. Okay. So now, with this in mind, I want to go deeper into the paraduma itself. So we have something called, and this is all going to sound very technical, but it's fascinating. It's fascinating. And it's not hard to understand. We have something in Torah called Tuma. What is, what is Tuma? Tuma is ritual impurity. So it's not like dirt, it's not hygiene, it's not like you smell or something like that. It's nothing like that. It's just that certain things create on our souls a, a level of ritualistic impurity. And when we, when we have that, that means that we can't go into the Holy Temple or to the tabernacle in the desert, the Mishkan, and bring an offering. And there are different types of tuma. Now, some tuma. And it's communicable, believe it or not. It's, it's a bit contagious. But there's levels of the contagion. So there's some categories of Tuma where, let's say I have it, and I touch someone, then they have it. Then let's say they touch the next person, and they have it. And then they touch the next person, but they don't have it. In other words, there's a certain type of Tuma that gets passed down from person to person to person, and then it stops. In other, in other words, it gets weaker along the way to the point where it can't be transmitted to the next person. And that, that's different categories of, of transmission of spiritual impurity of Tuma. But then you've got a category called Tumas Mace. And Tumas Mace, which means the impurity of death, never goes away which means that everyone, according to Jewish law, halachically speaking, has tumas mace, is in the category of tumas mace, which means everyone is considered to be someone who touched someone, 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 who came into contact with a dead body in one way or another. And, you know, I was thinking, you know, a, a while back, it used to be very popular on the internet. They talked about the the six degrees of separation between us and Kevin Bacon, right? Everyone <laughs> knew someone who knew someone who knew someone who knew Kevin Bacon, you know, this this celebrity, right? So so if you think about it, if there's no ceiling on it, like zero degrees of separation, like it just keeps on going back, for sure everyone has this, this status of Tumas Mace, contact with the dead. So let me just tell you what that means to me on a very personal, emotional level. 
that there's nothing more contagious among people than hopelessness. It's the easiest thing in the world to spread. Hopelessness is the easiest thing in the world to spread. In other words, why would being in the presence of a dead body, and let's define a dead body as a, you know, a, a body without a soul, why would that impurify me? And what I think is the premise of everything, of this world, of you, of me, of all of us, is life. And you are face-to-face with the biggest contradiction to your purpose and to the purpose of this world. And when you come face-to-face with utter, total contradiction, that there's a level of impurity in that that is actually contagious. It makes an impression on you. And it, it's funny because it's, I was talking to someone yesterday, a very wonderful spiritual person who, for whatever reason, is, is spending a lot of time learning the opposite of everything he believes in right now. <laughs> and guess what? It's having an impact on him. And guess what? That impact is negative. <laughs> And, you know, I, I'm just thinking of that as, a, as an example of when, you, when a person is in a room of a person without a soul, it is literally the opposite. It's the opposite of everything this world is constructed in order to accomplish. And it makes an imprint on you whether you're aware of it or not. Again, you know, I, I talked about the how the most contagious thing in the world is hopelessness. And I think that somehow being in the presence of death, a little bit of hopelessness seeps into our, our thinking, whether we want it to or not. We really have to be aware of that. You know, sociologists are discovering now today and they're documenting the idea that moods are contagious. And people just feel as though, you know, nothing belongs to me. My car belongs to the bank. My house belongs to the bank. Nothing belongs to me. You know what belongs to me? My mood. It's mine. Don't take away my bad mood. (laughs) At least, give me that at least. Give me that at least. Except that it's not yours because moods are contagious. Hopelessness is contagious. And your bad mood spreads to absolutely everybody. You know, back in the day in medieval times, you, you've probably seen this in like movies and things like that. It's, it's when we think about it from today's society, it's outrageous. It's absolutely outrageous. But people used to take, you know, they didn't have indoor plumbing. So people went in, in these, in these, you know, chamber pots, they sort of delicately, delicately called them. And people would be, okay, I'm tidying up around the house. And they would take their chamber pot and they would dump it out their front window. Can you imagine? That was the order of the day. And that was just what people did. So when you say, you know what, I'm in a bad mood, it's my business. 
<laughs> You're dumping your chamber pot in the middle of your office, in the middle of your dining room, in the middle of the neighborhood. What, what are you doing? People have to have a, a, a certain level of social responsibility. Okay, so now, now we're aware that, that, that you can't do things like just throw things out your window. You know, even in the 1950s, 1960s, and things like that, people would have their, their bag of food, right? Their, their, their fast food bag. And it was considered utterly normal to roll down your window on the highway and to chuck it out the window. It was considered absolutely 10,000% socially acceptable. Well, what am I supposed to do? Have a bag of garbage in my car? Where am I supposed to put it? Oh, out on the highway where we can blow around and get into trees and on lawns and all over the place. And then people sort of realized, wait a second, that's not cool. What am I doing? Can't do that. Okay, so now let's continue this level of insight into our age and realize that the same is true about our moods. Right? We, we, we've got to continue to learn and take it to the next level. Okay. So that, that's the number one thing that I want to say, just about Tumas Mace. Tumas Mace, it's nothing is contagious like it. But on a deeper level, I think it's about hopelessness. Right? Just in the here and now. Okay. But it can be combated. Now, I want to go into right now really what I wanted to talk about. So this is really kind of, you know, if you've been sleeping, wake up. <laughs> because this is, this is the main thing I want to give you today. When we talk about the ashes of the red heifer, the paraduma, most of the commentaries that you're going to find are going to talk about how it's getting rid of the impurity of death like we've been discussing up until now. But when you go into the deepest sources, the deepest sources are talking about how the paraduma is talking about the end of death itself. The end of death itself. That's now we're starting to get into like really really the deep places right now, okay? Now, I was learning this on Shabbos and the following thought came to me and it just kind of blew my mind and I want to share it with you, okay? Which is, I had a question, which is what is this idea of it has to be purely red? We're talking about the end of death itself and the paraduma has to be all red. Not only that, but this special red heifer can't have ever had a yoke on it, which means it can't have ever been put to work in a formal way, right? Like a yoke is, is something that you attach to an animal to pull a plow. Can't have ever had an, a yoke on it and it has to be purely red. Not only that, but there's more red involved because we've got this red string being put into this mixture, right? What's all this red going on? 
And if we're talking about the end of death, then how, what's going on? What's going on? Now, in Jewish thought, red stands for din. Din means it's translated as judgment. Okay? So, that's even kind of more mysterious now. We're talking about the end of death, and somehow the color that we're talking about is red, din. A little bit strange, a little bit curious. Okay, so now I want to give you an explanation. I want to say the following. Do you know why, if we're talking about the end of death right now, do you know why the red heifer can't have ever had a yoke to it? Because your body is a yoke to your soul. In other words, your body, your body is that attachment where your soul is pulling. <laughs> it's that fixture on top of your soul that's keeping it at work in this world. So the red heifer, which is addressing the end of death, when the body isn't attached to the soul anymore, that red heifer can't have had a yoke on it because it's talking about beyond the body right now, the life of the soul beyond the body. All right, but we have to get to this idea of the red stone. So it's going to sound like we're changing subjects, but we're not changing subjects. You know, we have two schools of halacha in, in the Talmud, Beis Hillel and Beis Shammai. And Beis Hillel is how we paskin, how we go according to deciding things, almost without exception, a few exceptions, in this world. And then we have Beis Shammai, which was also very, very great. Now, do you want to hear something fascinating? Beis Shammai is din. Beis Shammai is judgment. And you want to hear something even more interesting? They say, yeah, it's true. We go by Beis Hillel in this world. Do you know what? In Olam Haba, we're going to go according to the rulings of Beis Shammai. <laughs> in the next world, Beis Shammai, which represents Din, which is the color red, we're going to go according to that. All right, now, we're still not there yet. We're still developing the thought. But let me just tell you as an aside, because it's very important for our personal mitos, for our own personality refinement, why Beis Hillel was chosen to be the final answer and not Beis Shammai in this world. You ready? It's a beautiful, beautiful answer. Because Beis Shammai, when they would give the answer what they felt was Jewish law, when they would paskin and say, this is our conclusion, they would just say, this is our conclusion. When Beis Hillel would paskin and get to their conclusion, they would say the following, this is what Beis Shammai says, however, we say the following. And Hashem said, because Beis Hillel, you mentioned Beishamai's opinion before your own opinion, and then you gave your opinion, 
you will be the law of this, of this world. And if you think about it from a more abstract, mystical place, it actually makes perfect sense because this realm is a realm of multiple perspectives, right? So it would make sense that Base Hillel, which is incorporating an opinion other than their own, would make sense as the realm and the order of this world. But when you're getting to the place of objective reality, objective truth, where everything's just seen from God's point of view, then you don't need multiple opinions because there's only one opinion, because all there exists is God. So in the next world, it's Beishamai. And Beishamai is stricter, that's Din, and that's the color red. And that applies to the Paraduma, which is talking about the end of death. So you see something absolutely amazing in this week's Parsha, because it, it also deals with death in, in many, many different ways. You have the death of Miriam, you have the death of Aaron, and you have the death sentence of Moshe Rabbeinu. He doesn't die till the actually very end of the Torah itself. But God tells him that he's going to die and he's not going to bring the Jewish people into the land of Israel here. So it's, a, it's essentially the death of Moshe as well. And then, right after Moshe gets this death sentence, right, which is like changing all of history, because our tradition is, is that had Moshe led the Jewish people into the land of Israel, that basically would have been the end of days right there. So all of the world is turning in this week's Parsha where we're discussing the Paraduma, the red heifer, and death. Now, right after Moshe gets his death sentence, so to speak, the next line, it's, it's like, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. What happens? The next line. Moshe starts negotiating to go through the territory of the king of Edom. Now, Edom is the same word as Aduma. The par Aduma, the red heifer, which is, is purifying from death. All of a sudden, when Moshe gets this death decree, he goes up against the king of Edom. Edom means red, just like Aduma means red. Edom means red. And these are the descendants of Esav, who Rashi says is spiritually correlates with the Yetzahara, which correlates with death. In other words, right after Moshe gets his death sentence, he goes up against the king of death. Isn't this wild? And he says, I want to pass through your territory, which means the end of death. Now, look at the word Aduma. I did the gematria of Aduma, and I did the gematria of Edom, because they're variants of the same word. Aduma is very interesting, because that's the paraduma. So that's like the holy version of red, like we discussed. Do you know what Aduma, the gematria, is? Fascinating. 50. 50 is a very powerful number. We, call to, we talk about the top of heaven is the 50th level, the Shar Chamishim, the 50th gate. In other words, that's talking about the end of death. 
the par aduma. Aduma is 50. You want to hear something really interesting? Um, the king of Edom, Edom is 51. The Torah says, don't add or subtract to the mitzvah. You know how I interpret 51 in this context? As, as a gate, as, as, as a klipa, that extra, that extra wall guarding its own existence, the continued existence of death. That's what that extra one is there. That's my, that's my understanding of it. The snake healing thing, where we, and we're still dealing with healing and death. I'm wondering, is that maybe even a tacoon for the... Yeah, I love it. I love it. I love it. And it's, it's great. And it, it totally ties into what we're discussing, that, you know, we get bitten by snakes. Again, the snake goes back to the Nachash, the snake in the Garden of Eden, which... By listening to the snake, we brought death into the world. And so here, you know, we, it says we looked up at this copper snake, the statue that Moshe made by the instructions of God. And they said, it wasn't this snake statue. You know, I mean, it's, that sounds like the, the epitome of, a, of Odazora, idol worship. It wasn't the snake statue that, that brought healing. But it's because we looked up, the snake was on this pole. Because we looked up toward God, God brought the, the, the healing down. Right? So... But yes, I mean, we're talking about a Parsha, about not just impurity from contact with death, but that the paraduma on the deepest level means the end of death. And here we have us face to face with the source of death, the snake, and the healing of the bite of the snake is at the end of this Parsha, which is the triumph over death itself. But we're still not here yet. I want to use this to answer a very big question that people have about a classic, classic piece of Torah that I think is widely misunderstood. And this is something that I've thought about for over a period of years, okay? Till I came to this conclusion that I, that I really am eager to share. There's a very, very famous teaching that goes like this. In the beginning of the creation of the world, God wanted to do it with the attribute of din. God wanted to create the world with the attribute of din, which means judgment. And then God saw that human beings couldn't live in a world that was purely based on din. And so he factored in chesed, kindness, Rachmi, mercy. And so he mixed together din, judgment, and Rachmi, mercy. And then we have the world that we have today, where there's an order to the world and justice, inherent justice to creation. But at the same time, there's wiggle room for making a mistake and to be able to do tshuva and to get it together and to return. Right? Okay. So that makes a lot of sense, except if you think about it for a little while, it, it, it leaves you with a very, well, troublesome kind of thought, which is, wait, wait, back up a second. Did you say God wanted to make the world out of din? <laughs> Why did he? And, and he knew about mercy? <laughs> and he went straight to din? 
And it seems like it was only like a compromise measure that he threw in mercy? What kind of God are we dealing with here? Like, this is the worst fear of every single person. This is why so many people hear the word God and they want to run in the other direction. You're telling me God, so to speak, is like a principal with a ruler? And what he really wanted to do was to, to have like this super strict system where the second you got out of line, he was there to whack you? That was his go-to place? And then, like, the, the, the PTA said, you know, excuse me, uh, Principal Schwartz. We can't, the students can't quite survive under that system. Can you kind of loosen things up a bit? And he was like, ah, all right. All right, I'll be nice. <laughs> like, is that what is contained in this teaching? Is that what it means that God initially wanted to create the world from a standpoint of din? Which is, again, redness, right? And the answer is no. The answer is absolutely not. Absolutely not. I think to conclude that would have an, just a, a heartbreaking and, and tragic, tragic level of misunderstanding of who God is, what God is, what this world is, what our lives are, what Torah is, what Judaism is. So then what did God have in mind? Why is it be, being called din? And here, here's the answer, as far as, I, as, as, as far as I can grasp. Envisioned at the beginning of creation, you ready? Was perfection. It was perfection that God longed for. Perfection. Perfection of the world and perfection of his creations. And since God longed and envisioned from the very outset perfection, which, by the way, is the destiny of the world, right? Because we're still in the middle. We're still in the middle. As I always tell you, Everyone's got the same question, which is, if there's a God, why is the world so messed up? Because we're still in the process of the world being perfected. We're still in the middle. You know, I one of my absolute, absolute, absolute favorite teachings from Reb Shlomo is he says, everybody loves you when you're a finished product. Everybody loves you when you're a grape, and everybody loves you when you're wine. But do you know what a grape has to go through to become wine? Do you know how much it has to be stepped on and stomped on? He says, who loves you when you're in between? He says, those are your real friends. And I added to that teaching, which is, there's evil in the world still. There's injustice in the world still. Who loves God when the world is still in between? Those are God's real friends. So what God envisioned at the initial moments of creation before he set about to create the world, when we say that he envisioned a world made out of din, it's not that he was looking to create a world based on judgment. He was looking for a world from the very beginning that was perfect, 
And since the world that he envisioned was going to be perfect, no one was going to get out of line to begin with, which means that din was the proper order of the day. Which is why in the next world, the rabbis say we're going to go according to Beishamai, which is stricter, because we're not going to make any mistakes. <laughs> because we're going to have achieved that level of perfection. It's going to be gifted to us. You see, again, that's what Reb Shlomo teaches about the spies. The spies said we didn't have the level of merit to enter into the land. And Reb Shlomo says that what the spies didn't account for was that God can give it to us as a gift. You know, you can say, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy. And, you know, secretly it's just a big act. You think you're very worthy. But a person can say, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy. And guess what? You're not worthy. It's true. It's actually true. But you know what? God can still give it to you as a gift. And again, that's the idea of at the end of the process, the 10th level of the heart. You don't know. And that's not a surrendering to human weakness. But that's the triumph of understanding that everything is infinite. And so you conclude by being an open vessel where you can still receive it as a gift. And so the idea of the red heifer, why is it red? What is this red string going on? Why does it have to be perfectly red? Why does it, why can't it have had an, a yoke attached to it? Because we're talking about the soul liberated from the body. The body is the yoke. And why is it red? Because we're finally in that realm of perfection where red is the order of the day because we've become perfect so we can exist harmoniously in a strict system because the world at that point is completely aligned with the will of God. This is one of those very fundamental things that, that everyone's got to really as Reb Shlomo would say, you've got to carve this into your heart, what I'm telling you right now, because this is a very, very important understanding. So, so I'm telling you from Rob Ari Kaplan right now, but I'm going to kind of update his imagery a little bit in my own words, but, but this is from Rabbi Kaplan. And so my wife and daughter went to get a new phone. So what happens? They've got their old phone. And all the data on their phone is then transmitted. It's like beamed into the new phone. All the information from their old phone is taken out of their old phone and it's beamed into the new phone. That's, a, that's an amazing thing that they're doing. So Rabbi Kaplan makes a metaphor. He says, the old phone is, so to speak, like your body. And who are you really? Are you your arm? Are you your leg? On some level, yes. But on a much deeper level, you are all of your feelings and all of your experiences, right? All of your knowledge. Like that's your data. Just like, just like all the information on your phone is your data, your soul contains all of the information about your identity. 
That's the truest aspect of you. And just like when you go from one phone to another phone, all that information gets taken out of the old phone, right? When a person leaves their body after 120, they leave with all of the information about themselves. In other words, your entire identity leaves with you. You leave with you. That, that, this is very, very, very important. Because you remain you after you leave this world. That, that's because a lot of people have a very spiritual understanding. They believe in the soul. They believe in the eternity of the soul. They believe in the afterlife. And then they believe the following incorrect thing, which is, and then the soul goes up and disappears into the oneness of God. And it sounds very spiritual and beautiful, but it's not true. You do ascend and you do go to realms beyond, which are fantastic, right? As it says in Perkei Avos that the next world, it's like if you roll up every pleasurable thing that you ever did during your lifetime, one moment in the next world outstrips all the pleasures of this world, one moment in the next world. So what's the point? The point is, is that we, we really do live forever. We really do. I mean, we don't live in a body forever, but you continue to remain you even after you leave your body. Now, let me just tell you why that's so significant. Because people think of life and death. Life and death. And they even say, is there life after death? Right? But what I'm trying to suggest is there is only life. <laughs> there is life inside the body, followed by life outside the body. But all there is is life. And then when you understand that, then you aren't really impacted by the impurity of it. Thanks for listening. We do this every week, so join in again next Sunday for our new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.